Welcome to the Scripture Study Project, a fresh and faithful study of the scriptures that will renew your excitement for your own personal study and help you passionately teach what you're learning to others. I'm Krista, and I am here with my husband, Zach, and we are excited to get into the scriptures today. First off, we wanted to let you know that we are changing it up just a tiny bit here. We will be combining our study and our teaching tip and placing those at the beginning of the podcast from now on. We kind of feel like a lot of them were very similar to each other and kind of played together, so we thought this would hopefully make them more clear and a little more powerful. In fact, our study and teaching tip for today play off of that idea of how conjoined gospel study and gospel teaching actually are. We're calling this tip, teach how you study, not what you study. You've all been in the situation where you hear the speaker or the teacher, or maybe it's you yourself saying, well, I sure learned way more from preparing for this lesson than any of you are going to learn from hearing me speak. And we all nod our heads and laugh at that, but it actually ends up being kind of true. And isn't it sad that it's true? Shouldn't gospel teaching be more powerful than that? Well, this idea, I think, will make a difference in that venue. And the idea is really simple. You study the scriptures and have an incredible experience using maybe some of the study tips that we've mentioned before or your own study tips. You have this converting, incredible experience where you learn things that make a difference for you. Now, the problem is, is when we take that teaching or when we take that lesson into our teaching, we want to provide our class with the fruits of our study. Look at this cool verse. Look at this insight. I have this neat story. I have this incredible experience. And that leaves a lot of times us as class members wanting. We can respect that it means a lot to you, but sometimes it doesn't mean that much to us. And so the simple adjustment is this. When you step into class or when you're teaching your family, instead of giving them the fruits of what you studied, lead them through the same journey you went through and let them find their own fruit. Instead of telling them the verses where you found this highlightable phrase, or instead of giving them your story, ask them the questions that you asked yourself in your study. Maybe you started your personal study with a question that was really relevant to you about your family or about a situation that you're going through. Well, instead of giving them the answer that you got, maybe give them the question and then give them the time to study and go through the same scriptures you went through. And sure, maybe you give them a clue or a hint or a tip of something to look for. As you look through these verses, will you look for how God says this? Or look at a couple of ways that Nephi says this. But as you lead them through this journey, they're going to find things that matter to them. And it might be very different from the things that you found. But in my experience, this is the most powerful way to study a block yourself, looking for something that's just important to you, not necessarily trying to think of what would be important for other people. Just have that converting scripture study yourself. And then in teaching it, teach them, give them the how you studied, not just the what. We've always really loved the illustration that Elder Bednar talks about, and his quote is, the most important learnings of life are caught, not taught. And he uses the example of going out fishing. The real way to teach someone how to fish is to show them how to do it and let them feel the joy and the excitement of catching their own fish. Yeah. And I think that's, that's really what it's all about. So study, 
live and then help others do the same. This is episode 11, and we are diving into 2 Nephi 26 through 30. And we've wrestled with these chapters quite a bit. We've actually had a couple of false starts on this episode because there's so much content in these chapters and the next chapters that follow it. This is so much goodness. Yeah. So much goodness. Um, This is Nephi at the end of his writing. He knows that he's coming to a close. And it's Nephi transitioning his role a little bit. Up to this point, it's been Nephi the historian, Nephi the storyteller, or in the last little bit, Nephi the Isaiah quoter, Nephi the scriptorian. But now it's changing, not Nephi the storyteller or Nephi the scriptorian, but now it's Nephi the seer. In the beginning of chapter 26, 2 Nephi 26, Nephi looks into the future and he sees what's coming, as seers do, and what he sees isn't good. The first couple of verses in chapter 26 are all about the destruction he sees among his people. In verse 7, he talks about how that makes him feel. He says, Oh, the pain and the anguish of my soul for the loss of the slain of my people. For I, Nephi, have seen it, and it well nigh consumeth me before the presence of the Lord. It's not just the Nephites or the Lamanites that he sees, though. It's also the Gentiles. In verse 20, the Gentiles are lifted up in the pride of their eyes and have stumbled because of the greatness of their stumbling block. They have built up many churches. They put down the power and the miracles of God. They preach up unto themselves their own wisdom and their own learning that they may get gain and grind upon the face of the poor. There are many churches built up which cause envyings and strife and malice. Maybe you can associate with us. Maybe we can feel a little bit of this pain. Um, we're recording this episode just a couple of days after the shooting in Florida. Um, but my guess is whenever you listen to it, if you go back just to the day's most recent news, you can probably see some malice, some strife, and some anger that cause you that similar pain. And so in verse 22, still in chapter 26, Nephi identifies the cause. Why is all of this happening? Why are my people, my beautiful people, why are they going to be destroyed? And why are these Gentiles who up to this point have been kind of the beacon of hope? They're the ones that are going to bring the gospel back to my people. Why is it that they're falling and building up these these churches? Verse 22, in addition to there being secret combinations among the Gentiles, he identifies that these combinations and these other wickedness Come because of the devil. And he says, For he is the founder of all these things, yea, the founder of murder and works of darkness. However, this is not a scripture study of doom and gloom. At the end of our study, in chapter 30, the very last verse in chapter 30 is one of my favorites. And it says this, Wherefore all things which have been revealed unto the children of men shall at that day, meaning at this day, be revealed. And then this line, and Satan shall have power over the hearts of the children of men no more. And so our scripture study today is this, recognizing that Satan is the founder of many of the miseries and the problems that we're seeing in our world today, but also recognizing that Nephi the prophet points out there is a way to make it so that Satan doesn't win And so that he doesn't win in my heart and in my life. So that he doesn't destroy my family. There's a way to do that. We want to study how. 
President Benson once famously said about the Book of Mormon that it brings men to Christ through two ways. First, it tells in a plain manner of Christ and his gospel and testifies of his divinity. But second, it exposes the enemies of Christ. And more recently, I'm sure many of you will remember um, President Nelson talking in just last conference about the Book of Mormon, and he re re-emphasizes this point, and he, he says that the Book of Mormon both illuminates the teachings of the Master and exposes the tactics of the adversary. So what we want to do is do both of those. In this episode, we want to look at the tactics of the enemy that seem to be working, but also the things that God is doing and that God would have us do to make it so that Satan doesn't win anymore. Well, I will start out because I wanted to point out in this verse that Zach already read that identifies who Satan is, the second half identifies another tactic. So here it is. The devil leadeth them by the neck with a flaxen cord until he bindeth them with his strong cords forever. Um, the flaxen is a, a long, fair, fine piece of string that, you know, does that gradual... Maybe at first it doesn't seem like a lot. And let's turn to um, some other famous verses. And I say famous, but maybe just more familiar verses. In chapter 28, um, Yea, and there shall be many which shall say, Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And it shall be well with us. We actually saw, do you remember in California, we saw a restaurant, was it California? That know. the title, the name of the restaurant was Eat, Drink, and Be Merry. Yeah, we did see that. Somewhere. The name of the restaurant. That's right. Anyway, we thought, hmm. you know, prophecy fulfilled. Yeah. <laughs> but maybe the more um, applicable part to this, and link, you know, in thinking of the flax and cord, that like slow but and almost unnoticeable thing, he's, he goes on here, and there shall be also many which shall say, Eat, drink, and be merry, nevertheless, fear God. He will justify in committing a little sin, yea, a little, a lie a little, take the advantage of one because of his words. Just just do those little things, little by little, and that's that flax and cord, just slowly wrapping us up. It's interesting to think if you, I, I'm, I'm imagining, you know, just basic sewing thread. And if yeah. I were to wrap that around my wrists once, and tie a knot, you I'd be able it. to break it pretty easily. But I wrap it's it not around strong. Right, two or three or four or ten or twenty times. It's so imperceptible that I may not notice it, but when it's twenty times wrapped around, there's no way I can break it. And we, we've recently just watched and read The Little Prince, mm -hmm. and the word that my kids have, oh, been, yeah. have been throwing around, and you're going to have to remind me because I forget it. Baobabs. Baobabs. Those little lies that you tell that turn into bigger and bigger things, and I, that's just been on my mind a lot with this, and I think it applies here as well. Yeah. Those little things, they add up. Yeah. For mine, I went to chapter 28. I've always been kind of interested in the tug and pull on our emotions in this great battle between God and Satan. In three verses in chapter 28, Nephi identifies three separate emotions that Satan wants us to feel. So if you want a tactic, here are three emotional things that he wants you to go through. First in verse 20, Behold, at that day shall he rage in the hearts of the children of men and stir them up to anger against that which is good. My guess is that you don't have to look far on any 
post or any comment to anything that someone posts that's positive to find someone that has a snarky, sarcastic comment at best and an outright horrible one at worst. Uh, we had some friends tell us that um, a friend of theirs recently with his wife posted something, I think it was on a Facebook Live, mm -hmm. just professing their beliefs and, and sharing what they thought was something good only to be flooded with negative commentary, really vile, horrible commentary. And I just thought how sad it is. But Nephi saw that, that Satan wants us to be angry against that which was good. The second emotion, verse 21, others he will pacify and lull them away into carnal security. And they will say, all is well in Zion, yea, Zion prospereth, all is well. And thus the devil cheateth their souls and leadeth them away carefully down to hell. If the first emotion he wants us to feel is anger against that which is good, the second emotion he wants us to feel is just apathy. He wants us to, I don't know. Meh. Meh, yeah. <laughs> but it's, that's probably in the new dictionary. Yeah, that's it. Meh, I think that probably is one of the new When words. they update the scriptures, that'll be in verse 21. <laughs> uh, emotion 3 in verse 22, And behold, others he flattereth away, and telleth them there is no hell. And he saith unto them, I am no devil, for there is one. And thus he whispereth in their ears until he grasps them with his awful chains from whence there is no deliverance. Anger, apathy, and then pride, overconfidence. I've got this. In fact, there's no enemy. There's no Satan. Uh, there's no real right or wrong. There's definitely no wrong. I think we see this all over. The justification for people's choices a lot of times comes out of anger or out of apathy or out of pride. And I think it's one of those tools that Satan's using to slowly denigrate the world. There is a quote to go along with this that I heard. I'm, I think it was President Monson that quoted this that first, where I first heard it, but it's from Alexander Pope. He says, Vice is a monster of so frightful mien as to be hated needs but to be seen. Yet seen too oft, familiar with her face, we first endure, then pity, then embrace. And I, I feel like that kind of encompasses the flax and cord, the apathy, um, the, pride. the pride, those emotions that we're feeling is that, you know, first we don't like them, but slowly we get eh, used to it. We go, meh, yeah. <laughs> and then we embrace them, and we sometimes don't notice that, that pattern. Yeah, in fact, verse 23, uh, after these three emotions that Nephi names, he says, They are grasped with death and hell, and death and hell and the devil and all that have been seized therewith must stand before the throne of God and be judged according to their works. And then here's the scary part. From whence they must go into the place prepared for them, even a lake of fire and brimstone, which is endless torment. President Packer tells the story once of going on an African safari. And as he's out in the African wilderness, his tour guide points out to him that the different animals, the, uh, oh, I don't know what African animals there are, the wildebeest, the, the antelope, the gazelle, right? They'll approach these really muddy, shallow-looking watering holes only to run away from them before they even take a drink. And President Packer asks his guide, why are they running away? And the guide simply says, crocodiles. 
And President Packer says, that's nonsense. There's no crocodiles in those muddy little watering holes. Anyone can see that. And so the park ranger drives him to another spot and shows him as these animals get close, there is indeed this crocodile just lurking in the water. And he's he's not moving. He's not charging. He's just laying there so calmly and so peacefully that the animals get lulled into this sense of calm, maybe a little bit of pride that they can run away faster than the crocodile can chase them. And the second they get too close to the hole, too close to the lake, this crocodile jumps out, snaps them with his jaws and drags them down. And President Packer uses that example uh, in these verses to discuss that's exactly the way Satan works. Whether it's through anger or whether it's through apathy or whether it's through pride, he wants us to approach his watering hole so that he can reach up and, like Nephi says, grasp us with his awful chains and drag us down to his lake of fire and brimstone from which there can be no escape. Well, I think Nephi explains exactly that story in scriptural language here. Therefore, woe be unto him that is at ease in Zion. Woe be unto him that crieth all is well. And I don't know, what what would be the the modern day? We don't run around saying woe be unto him. Um, but maybe it's that of let's be aware of what's happening maybe to our thoughts or to our behaviors and be aware of the crocodiles and our emotions and how we're letting Satan slowly get a hold of us. Yeah, that's a great point. Well, back in 26, Nephi talks about destruction, points out that Satan's the founder of it, and then starts talking about these tactics. But he doesn't go too far without offering the, the counterpoint, the hope. He says this, this is verse 23, right after the verse 22, where we talk about the flaxen cord. For behold, my beloved brethren, I say unto you that the Lord God worketh not in darkness. He doeth not anything, save it be for the benefit of the world. For he loveth the world, even that he layeth down his own life, that he may draw all men unto him. So as tactically gifted as Satan is, and as much destruction and pain as he is causing, He's not the only one in this battle. He is matched up against someone that is far more powerful, uh, far more capable, and is actually winning the war. And so the next thing we want to talk about is, what is it that God is doing to win this war? And what is it that we all can do to take part in that? And I'm going to start off this particular study. In chapter 27, Nephi gives kind of an interesting symbol. In the middle of verse 3, he says that the day will come where men will be like a hungry man which dreameth, and behold, he eateth, but awaketh, and his soul is empty. Or like unto a thirsty man which dreameth, and behold, he drinketh, but he awaketh, and behold, he is faint, and his soul hath appetite. People are running around spiritually starving, and because they're starving, they're looking for anything they can do to fill that hole in their soul. And it's just not working. Satan has a billion and one horrible substitutes, none of which provide the actual nourishment that a soul needs. However, God does have something that fills that hole. And Nephi points it out in verse 6. It shall come to pass that the Lord God shall bring forth unto you the words of a book, and they shall be the words of them which have slumbered. And behold, the book shall be sealed, and in the book shall be a revelation from God 
from the beginning of the world to the ending thereof. And you read this chapter, and especially chapter 29, and you learn this is the Book of Mormon. And so the first thing God's doing to fight back is he has brought forth this marvelous work, this wonder, this Book of Mormon that is revelation from God and teaches things from the creation through the fall and to the end of the world, and that gives manna to the soul, gives true feast to the soul, and gives water to our hearts and helps us fill those holes that are caused in our spirit from the world that we live in. And our modern day prophets are certainly talking a lot about the Book of Mormon as well. Um, We, last time President Monson was able to talk to us in conference, his three-minute talk was on the Book of Mormon and the power there that that the book has. He says, My dear associates in the work of the Lord, I implore each of us to prayerfully study and ponder the Book of Mormon each day. As we do so, we will be in a position to hear the voice of the Spirit, to resist temptation, to overcome doubt and fear, and to receive Heaven's help in our lives. Um, And what beautiful promises those are. And I don't think it's any coincidence that then President Nelson in last October re-emphasized President Monson challenging us to read the Book of Mormon again and to be more prayerful about it. And here we are now with all of these. I mean, I feel like, I just feel like there was a lot of talk about the Book of Mormon. And um, these chapters here are just more evidence of the power that we can receive from through the Book of Mormon. It's cool to me to think that Satan has all of these tactics Uh, all of these tools, all of these techniques and emotions and how complex his system is for trying to destroy us. And that God has this really simple, straightforward tool that provides such joy and such clarity. And to take President Monson at his word can really help us avoid temptation and help us be spiritually stronger. And that's why we love those, these chapters so much. This, this joy and excitement um, for the Book of Mormon and for that simple answer that maybe it's not so sim- it's almost too simple maybe um, but I, I loved here continuing on in chapter 27 and the day cometh that the words of the book which were sealed shall be read upon the housetops and they shall be read by the power of Christ and I love thinking of Nephi as the seer, seeing this day of like, what does this, what does this look like? All these people are proclaiming the Book of Mormon. Maybe, I don't know, is he seeing someone's social media post yeah. or something? But here we are shouting from the rooftops. And why do we shout it from the rooftops? Because we feel something behind mm-hmm. it and we have the desire to share it. I liked verse 14 to go along with that, that the Lord God will proceed to bring forth the words of the book in the mouth of as many witnesses as seemeth him good. Mm, And so Nephi seeing all of these people proclaiming the Book of Mormon, and he's seeing them do it in such a way that everyone can hear them. And what a beautiful description for how, how so many today are getting involved in sharing the gospel, spreading the gospel, and just being true and honest about their beliefs and offering those beliefs in a world where people are kind of negative. That needs an additional witness of the Savior. Mm -hmm. It was in President Nelson's talk that he... Um, told the story of the king that he told the Book of Mormon about. And this king was just like, 
you can you could give me rubies, you could give me jewels and money, but this is more precious to me because it's another witness of the Savior. And that's in essence what we're what what it's all about in verses twenty nine and thirty. And in that day shall the deaf hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. And he says, And the meek also shall increase, and their joy shall be in the Lord. And the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. We're rejoicing because of additional witnesses and knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's cool to think Satan has these emotions he wants us to feel, and the world is is to some degree flooded with them, but the one emotion he can account for, God's emotion to counteract Satan's, is joy. And that joy comes from knowing who we are, knowing who God is, and knowing our path back to him, which is what's being shouted from the rooftops, which is what's taught in the Book of Mormon. Mm -hmm. It fills us with joy, which makes us almost impervious to Satan's attempts to get us to feel angry or prideful or apathetic. We had a a question from one of our listeners um, in discussion. She says, maybe we've missed the mark on what happiness is. If women are supposed to be leading out in happy ways, why are so few of them actually happy? Now, this is referring to President Nelson's talk from a few years ago um, that women will lead out in distinct, will be different and distinct in happy ways. And I, so that word joy really stuck out to us mm-hmm. in, in verse 30 because of this question. And of course, we could probably do a whole episode just on joy. Which in fact, we might well we do will, that. Right? Because it would be so interesting. But the footnote brings you over to Doctrine and Covenants 101 36. Wherefore, fear not even unto death, for in this world your joy is not full. But in me, your joy is full. Oh, that's cool. The Book of Mormon gives us additional witness of Jesus Christ so we can feel more joy in him. And I just loved the words from Sister Bingham in last October, again, last conference. She says, Lasting joy is found in focusing on our Savior, Jesus Christ, and living the gospel as demonstrated and taught by him. The more we learn about him, have faith in and emulate Jesus Christ, the more we come to understand that he is the source of all healing, peace, and eternal progress. And I think the thing that stuck out to me so much in these last three, those last three words, the source of all healing, peace, and eternal progress is that's what joy is. When we're healed, when we feel peace, and when we know that we can get better work hard and find that eternal progress towards towards God. Which doesn't mean that we're always happy. God has a fullness of joy, but there are plenty of accounts of him being saddened or disappointed, but he has that fullness of joy. And I think joy is that deeper inner peace that you are living your life in accordance with what God expects of you. To summarize our points, if Satan is using this flaxen cord and trying to get us to feel these emotions of anger and apathy and pride, God is fighting back and winning in really simple ways. He's given us a Book of Mormon which fills our soul, and then we participate in this 
spreading of the Book of Mormon by getting on our rooftops, or whatever that may mean for us, and proclaiming it to the world. And when we do that, when we both receive the Book of Mormon, and I believe when we start to share the Book of Mormon, that's when we find lasting joy. If we can do that, then the promise Nephi gives in chapter 30, verse 18, I think, I believe, will come true for us. That at that day when these things are revealed, in our day, right now, and maybe right now for you, Satan will have power over your heart no more. Thank you so much for studying with us, for listening. We're so grateful to have you here, and we'll see you next episode.